Where do the A-League's players stand on the introduction of a domestic transfer system? Are they still against an NPL on planes style national second division? What does the players' union feel is the biggest impediment to Australia's production of, well, players? And why should football and all sports be standing up for Ukraine and human rights? I'm your host, Joey Lynch, and this is Beyond the Lead with Professional Footballers Australia Co-Chief Executive, Bo Bush. You can't have football without footballers. Unless you're a fan of esports, I guess. But for the real thing that takes place out in the pitch, everything grinds to a halt unless you've got 11 players pulling on a team's shirt and getting amongst it. In Australia, these players are represented by Professional Footballers Australia, the PFA, who thanks to its tradition of competence since its founding has taken on a significant role in the direction of the sport. As well as serving as the negotiating body with Football Australia and the Australian Professional Leagues when it comes to collective bargaining agreements for the A-Leagues and the national teams, the Players' Union is a key stakeholder in the negotiations surrounding reforms to Australian football's operations and also serves as a thought leader through its production of research such as its Golden Generation Report. It's also become a leading voice for sports and its members to be heard on human rights. However, perhaps due to its continued success at the negotiating table, the Players' Union is not always the most popular figure in Australian football, sometimes accused of protecting its own patch at the cost of others. It's recently butted heads with Football Australia and its CEO James Johnson over a mooted domestic transfer system in Australian football, with dueling statements to ESPN made in the wake of a Johnson interview with Beyond the Lead in which he mooted imposing a DTS on certain segments of the Australian game. In the third of Beyond the Lead's interviews with the major players in the Australian football scene, be sure to listen to our chats with Johnson and APL Managing Director Danny Townsend for the others, I spoke with PFA Co-Chief Executive Bo Bush to get a better insight into the union's perspective on a DTS, as well as their views on a national second division, player development, and the intertwining of football and human rights. But first, I asked him how the players felt about the trajectory of Australian football at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. No, thanks so much for having me on, Joey. It's really great to be able to chat to you about where the game is, mate. So I think when we when we have discussion, there's a range of players. We've obviously got our members that are overseas. Um, we've got our domestic players as well too. And I think the key thing that sort of unites them all is belief around the game as to where it's going to go and an absolute commitment to trying to get the sport to where we all want to get it to. We need to make this work. Um, we're not going to get many more chances to make the game work. You don't continually get handed chances to make a professional career or industry work the way we'd like it to. So I think when we have a discussion with the Socceroos, there's an absolute determination to try and make it to the World Cup. They're certainly not throwing in the towel and you get a sense of, I spoke to a lot of them over the past week, so they're absolutely committed to that. The Matildas, there's a real commitment to be able to improve on the performance of the Asian Cup exam and everything that happened. And they're very calm and very committed to that process of getting better. And then when we look at the leagues, you know, the last couple of years, you look at four of our teams have in this year played one match at home in Perth Glory's men's team. Our, <coughs> excuse me, our Wellington Phoenix players have been in this country for effectively two and a half years. So I think what it speaks to is there's an absolute belief in that the players are willing to do their part to get the game right. 
we've got a little bit of breathing space around collective bargaining and those sort of things. We've got a Women's World Cup to look forward to. So there's great opportunity, but there's also, as everyone knows, enormous challenges as well too. But what's been a real honour, to be honest, is to be able to sit in this chair alongside CAVE and represent the people that we have. And we've seen the commitment they have to the sport and we all need to work incredibly hard and match that to get this thing right. There's a lot of talk about reforms moving ahead into what is hoped to be a brave new era for Australian football, that ever-present sleeping giant. Maybe one day he's going to wake up, he or she is going to wake up. Uh, one of the reforms being pushed is a domestic transfer system. Uh, football Australia CEO James Johnson is adamant about the need for one. And I'll ask you about the PFA's views on the domestic transfer system in a moment. But first, recently, um, in response to claims of FA, and I'll quote Johnson here, a long consultation process, PFA said that it hadn't been consulted properly on the domestic transfer system since early 2021, at which point a Football Australia spokesperson told ESPN that the PFA had opted out of that process in the, in the wake of the white paper's delivery in a questionnaire that went out surrounding that. What's the current state of Football Australia and the PFA's dialogue over a domestic transfer system? I think we've always had a really effective relationship with the governing body and that's been reflected by, for the past sort of, since the inception of the A-League and the inception of Football Australia, we've been able to get deals done, whether that's the national teams or the domestic leagues up until recently prior to the unbundling. I think what's really important when we have this discussion, the PFA, it's not about being averse to change or in favour of change. It's about progress and being able to demonstrate that whatever's being put on the table can progress the game and we're not just simply changing the game for the sake of it. So I think we're invited to a consultation process back in early 2021. Um, we're invited to take part in that. And we responded outlining that, probably unsurprising to most people, that we believe this is a matter for collective bargaining. It's not a matter for simple consultation. And the basis for that is we've seen how that's played out around the world. FIFPRO has been involved in a very long-standing consultation around the reform of the international transfer system with FIFA. And that started a long time ago and unfortunately has run into a bit of a cul-de-sac with a lot of different stakeholders having a lot of different views. But our very simple view is that ultimately this has been a matter that's always historically been collectively bargain around the transfer system. Also really importantly around that as well too is if the players are to be bought and sold as anyone in any industry would want, I'm sure they'd want that to occur with their agreement and they'd want to make sure that it's actually able to be demonstrated how it's positively going to impact the industry. So around this whole sort of notion that we opted out, simply what we responded with was unsurprising i'd imagine to football australia and many people in the community is that this is a fundamental matter that will have a significant impact on players so therefore it's a matter for collective bargaining it's simply too important to be consigned solely to consultation so now maybe looking at the domestic transfer system itself the process of selling and buying player registrations you're not actually buying the player themselves they're more so their registration with their club and fifa but what is the PFA's position on the viability of a domestic transfer system in Australia? I think it's really important. If we go back in time to the start of the A-League, what was important at the time was when this competition was being established, no one really knew what it was going to cost. And therefore, the salary cap was offered because we needed to be able to seek investment and we needed that investment, needed the certainty around what it was going to cost to pay the players. But prior to that, in the National Soccer League, we did have a transfer system that was modified significantly as a result of collective bargaining agreement. There was a lot of good work that went into that to be able to 
things such as first right of refusal and other aspects of it that you don't really see in many parts of the world right now. But unfortunately, that in and of itself wasn't able to keep the game financially viable. And we saw what happened at the end of the National Soccer League prior to the A-League. So I think as we look at it now, what we think is really fundamental is that we need to assess the context that we're in currently. We have a collective bargaining agreement on foot. It's a five-year collective bargaining agreement. And that's really important. We want a certainty for the players. We want a certainty for the industry to be able to build on. And when we look at the transfer system, what's clear around the world is that there's a few key aims for the transfer system that's used to legitimise as to why it's in place, because it obviously does act as a restraint on players. One of them is revenue redistribution. We've heard that discussed a lot. But when you look around the world, sort of of that $5 billion that's paid in the last uh, financial year regarding transfer fees of players, about 70% of that was in the big five. Then when you take out the big five, there's some big clubs in other markets, such as your Ajax and others, that are getting significant fees. But in most leagues around the world, we're not seeing any sort of significant evidence anyway that it acts to a significant degree to redistribute revenue from big clubs to small clubs. So if that's why that's being brought in here, we need to question of how that looks around the world. And also we need to look at the impact that the transfer system has had around the world on competitive balance as well too. We've certainly got our challenges in this country around that, around competitive balance as well too, and we need to seek improvement in that space. But the transfer system hasn't been associated around the world with developing a really thriving competitive league. In terms of that, you say looking around the world, it does fly in the face of clubs that position themselves as selling clubs and maybe they don't make a ton of money compared to the biggest clubs but in like the I guess the uh, the logic would dictate well not the logic but they would persist that they make enough from not just transfer fees I guess but also sell on fees and trading compensation and all of that sort of stuff is there there's a bit of a contrast there why do you think that difference in perception perhaps between what clubs think and players think. Is no, absolutely. And look, there's certainly... Anyone would be able to find specific examples that reinforce their point. So if you look at an IX, for example, they make a significant amount primarily through the international transfer market. They produce the best young talent and then they're able to sell them on. If you look at some other clubs within that same league, so the idea being around a, a Excelsior or whoever it is, the transfer of money from IAX down to buy their clubs, buy their players rather, doesn't occur at a rate that actually allows them to bridge a gap between the two clubs. So what we actually see is outside of a few clubs that are regularly competing in the Champions League, so they're seeing their players participate in the best against the best, whether that be um, clubs some of the top clubs in Croatia, whether that be a Monaco and Ajax, as I've referenced a few times, the vast majority aren't winners on the transfer market. If we look at countries such as Hungary, Cyprus, that have been mentioned previously, they actually spend more on the international market than they get in. So we need to make sure as we're assessing this, we need to look at not only what they're getting in international sales, but also what they're spending to be able to make that money on the market as well. You talk about the NSL's transfer system and how that obviously didn't help the NSL's viability, but at the same time, that transfer system, it was abolished on the recommendations of a Senate committee because of rampant corruption um, within it. Does, is it fair to say that a domestic transfer system couldn't help the NSL when it was shown to be corrupt? Could it not be argued that if it wasn't corrupt, it might have helps the viability of the NSL? Well, I think there's two parts. Obviously, the Stuart inquiry was really important. That led yeah. to significant reforms. And prior to that, it's, it's very well doc documented, some of the corruption and graft that was outlined in, in Donald Stewart's report. 
but there was a reform of it. There was a huge amount of work that was done between the PFA and also the NSL back then as well too. But I think the point I'm trying to make is not necessarily that in and of itself, it's the success of the transfer system should live and die on whether or not it ensured a viable national uh, soccer league at the time, but more rather around the fact that it didn't in and of itself actually help make the competition uh, financially viable mm. at the time. So you're making a lot of arguments surrounding why the why transfer systems don't foster competitive balance or allow teams to be sustainable. Why do you think that maybe outside of the MLS and their own Americanized franchise view of sports, why do you think there's no actual impetus against the current transfer system around the world? It doesn't feel like there's any major movements to reform the transfer system beyond maybe agent fees and all of that sort of stuff. There's no actual movement against the buying and selling of players. No, well, I think from a player's perspective, certainly FIFPRO are hugely frustrated with the reform. So that's a global players' union. So there certainly exists a real want to significantly reform the transfer system. And we saw that back in 2015. There was an actual legal challenge uh, made against the transfer system. And in the end, there was a, a uh, commitment to reform that with FIFA. But unfortunately, that hasn't really gone uh, a significant way or as far as certainly globally the players would have liked to have seen improvements so I think from that point of view certainly maybe there isn't the same appetite whether it be in clubs or FIFA but from a player's perspective globally there is a significant appetite to reform the system and that's based on if that system is going to be in place and there's a range of objectives that it's meant to achieve we need to assess it against those objectives so if it's in regards to the redistribution of revenue we need to assess of how that's actually worked and there's been some really important work done around that um, and i mentioned that a little bit earlier as to how effective that is we also need to look at it's also meant to support competitive balance and contractual stability as well too so we need to assess it against all of those and i think the very fact that fifa committed to this reform process illustrates that it hasn't been achieving those objectives globally and therefore that's why the players are really eager to see significant reform at the global level as well on a domestic level and i understand you might not be able to say too much because you do want this collectively bargains but what reforms do you think, does the PFA think that Australian football needs to make surrounding player movement and player retention? Because obviously we see at the moment players, incredibly, it's an incredibly transient A-League, there's almost, well, there's not zero, but there's very little uh, stability in terms of player contracts, all of that sort of stuff. It's very difficult for fans to get attached to players because they know so often they might move. What sort of reforms do you think Australian football needs to make surrounding player movement? I think that's a really important question and we've been on the record for a number of years now Joey around the fact that the churn in the leagues isn't helpful it's not helpful for play development and it's certainly not helpful for fans building a connection with players so that's really important there but I think we're actually seeing some important signs of improvement under this collective bargaining agreement and that was always the hope that by entering into a long-term deal making some pretty significant changes around how the cap works, allowing for more contracting of young players, which we're seeing as well too. They were actually seeing the amount of players in their first year at their current club drop pretty significantly. And we're also seeing the amount of players that are now set to come off contract at the end of the season drop as well. Now, are those numbers where we would like them to be? No, we want more stability. That's in the interest of the players and the game as well too. So, but we are seeing some important signs of recovery and the hope is that now the game has more certainty around the collective bargaining agreement. What we were having was consistent short-term agreements and clubs were often saying to us or players as well were saying we can't enter into a deal with the player because we actually don't know what the minimum wage is what the cap's going to be and all those sort of things so the hope was that by doing this we would actually reduce some of that and allow clubs to offer more long-term deals 
and encouraging and we're seeing that and we hope that next year we can actually improve on that as well. Looking, James Johnson has talked about potentially imposing a domestic transfer system on Australian football if consultation is exhausted. I'll quote him verbatim here. It might be a case of beginning the transfer system in, in a certain part of the football pyramid whereas it might take longer to establish it in other parts of the system. So we're looking at mechanisms in different stages that we can implement a transfer system. You've said that the PFA feels a domestic transfer system needs to be collectively bargained. Does the PFA feel as though they have any recourse, whether that's legal or otherwise, to actually enforce a collectively bargained domestic transfer system? I would like to think it would be unlikely that Football Australia would impose that on the players without the agreement of them and also, importantly, the clubs. That's certainly not the way things have been done in the last sort of 17 years. We've always found a way to sit down at a table and reach agreement. So I think that part's pretty un, uh, pretty unlikely. I think a key part as well to why it needs to be collectively bargained is we've also got a different dynamic now where we've got Football Australia separated out from the league as the regulator. Then we've got the clubs that are sitting down with us administering the day-to-day operations of the league and also doing a collective bargaining agreement. So what we don't want to see certainly is the players having two restraints imposed on them, a salary cap and a transfer system. And I'm happy to get into why that would be problematic for the players. Um, So that's why it's really important that we reach an agreement. And also whatever system comes in, it needs to be aligned to the game's objectives and actually what we want the professional game to achieve. So I think it would certainly be counterproductive to impose a transfer system against the will of the players and against the um, will of the clubs as well too. That's not going to achieve anyone's objectives. So I'd like to think that's pretty unlikely. If that was to happen, we'd certainly look at our, our options around that. But again, I think that's a pretty unlikely outcome at the moment. And we've continued to have discussions as recently as yesterday with Football Australia around this. Mm. Also, I will ask you about the CAC in a sec, but also as part of the domestic transfer system proposals, uh, Football Australia has also floated changes to how training compensation works here in Australia. So, you know, incentivising, it's framed around incentivising NPL clubs to retain talent rather than have young players play for three or four different NPL clubs throughout their junior career and all of that sort of stuff. What's the PFA's view on just specifically the training compensation reforms that have been floated? We had some really positive discussions with Nick from the AAFC last week to try and understand those challenges of those clubs and how they're feeling. So I should that just say that's Nick Galatis. Nick Galatis, absolutely. So, yeah, so we met, met with Nick last week and what we wanted to do was understand the challenges at that level. It's not a level that we're consistently operating in. And he was able to outline some of the pain points for clubs and losing players at a time and feeling like they weren't getting rewarded for the investment that they made in the development of that young player. I think we were in agreement with Football Australia, AFC, and, and I'm sure all of our players, all of our members rather, want to see is a thriving um, domestic development scene for players. So therefore, how do we align the interests of everyone to ensure that we don't put too much hindrance in the way of players, um, but we also are rewarding clubs? So that's a challenge we've sort of got. There's a tension we've got to work through there, but I think there's an absolute agreement in that we need to incentivise that. The example I always use is if we look at Mila Yednak coming out of Sydney United and going to Central Coast Mariners, there's going to be a fee that a particular A-League club are willing to pay for the release of that player to come in. And it's in Australian football's interest that that fee isn't set too high that it acts as a barrier for that player coming into the league. So we need to work out how do we align the game's interests around shared objectives. And there could be a variety of ways that we could compensate clubs for the development of talent. It could be in the event they make a national team appearance. There's money that flows back from the federation down to their junior club, that they play 50 A-League matches, 100 A-League matches, they qualify for the Asian Champions League, whatever it is. 
that's aligned to performance that's also connected to the player achieving and doing really well and the game doing well. The problem could become if we say increased training compensation that is in place at the moment, say fourfold, we may get into a position where we're actually seeing players don't move because A-League clubs may be in a position where they say we simply can't afford to pay that or we're not willing to pay that and that's in no one's interest that we stop that movement of players but equally so we need to find a sweet spot to ensure those clubs are rewarded. So we need to work through a few parts. We need to understand the costs, we need to understand who's paying and we need to work out on a model that aligns everyone's interests around that player getting to the highest level possible. You talked about briefly before the tension between the a domestic transfer system and the salary cap being in place at the same time. Could you walk me through PFA's views on that? Well, they're essentially meant to achieve two different outcomes, really, and we see that around the world. So when we look at the salary cap, the idea is around competitive balance, and there's work to do on that. We're starting to see some positive signs around more balance in the league in the past couple of years, but certainly we're not where we would like it to be. There's also a key part around revenue sharing as well too. The clubs actually share revenue equally amongst each other at the moment. And importantly as well, it's a closed shop. So if you were to see a Central Coast Mariners were buying a player off Newcastle Jets at the moment, the economy of the professional game in this country isn't growing through that transaction. It's staying the exact same. Where if you look at a transfer system, what it's about is big clubs being able to buy smaller clubs' talent. So effectively through that, they do achieve some compensation for that but it erodes competitive balance so they're not about achieving the same things so you're likely to put Australian football into more chaos than where we are now the second part for a player's perspective is the cap effectively works as a barrier on the amount of money a player can earn in the competition and tries to distribute talent evenly across the competition if you were to impose a transfer system as well there'd also be a tax on the employment of players as well so players would effectively be not able to earn at some points their market value at their club, but also the cost of employing them would become more expensive. So that's gonna be really important for us that we ensure that doesn't play out for players as well too. Well, it feels like the salary cap, there's been more exemptions built into it year on year on year at this point. It doesn't resemble anything like what one would expect when they hear a salary cap, which is everybody has the same amount of money they can spend. It doesn't resemble that at all. But So it feels like it's already weakening. But if, and acknowledging that this is something the APL would have to come to the table on as well, but would the PFA be more likely to entertain a domestic transfer system if there was no salary cap in the A-Leagues? We're not ideologically wedded to one over the other, so we're certainly flexible to be able to work through that. But I think what's really important, we need to assess the context in which a game finds itself at the moment, and there's a significant challenge around revenues. Also, we need to look at the cap in connection to the whole professional game as well too. And one of the key parts in agreeing to the cap this year when we look at women's football, for example, we're able to get the floor much higher and actually tie that for the first period of time, and that's meant more investment into the women's game. But also the cap was important from a club perspective on the men's side to be able to have some level of cost control to allow for greater investment hopefully in a Y league and also importantly into women's football as well too and facilities that we're seeing as well too. So we need to assess that in context. Certainly um, we're not going to agree to both. That's really fundamental and we don't think that'd be in the interest of the game. We're not ideologically wedded to one over the other, but as I said at the very start, we've got a five-year collective bargaining agreement. We're seeing some important signs around that. We're seeing double the amount of scholarship players. We're seeing 45% of players in the league are under 23. So we're seeing some encouraging signs around that agreement. Huge amount of work to do, um, but we'll have to wait and see how we work through that with Football Australia and also the clubs. 
Now, I've seen you on social media recently talk, engaging with some uh, Australian football fans, and so no doubt you would have seen that PFA has been copying a bit of flack uh, for, uh, for the, their stance on the domestic transfer system from the public accusations that you're defending your own turf at the cost of the game. I'm sure it's not an unfamiliar critique that you've heard about player labour for decades, but what would you say to those people? I think I said it a little bit earlier, and at the risk of repeating myself, it's not about change, it's about progress. And that really needs to be demonstrated through whatever we're doing. And we should be able to hold each other to account. If we're putting up ideas, if Football Australia are putting up ideas, or the clubs, whoever it is, we need to be able to assess them against facts, against research and evidence. That's really fundamental here. So it's not about being popular, it's about getting it right. And that's really important for us. And at times people may be challenged by our position on the transfer system. You know, a lot of people love, I love myself, seeing Harry Redknapp wind down the window coming out of Tottenham's training ground to be able to talk about who's coming in. And that's people's normal association with the game. But we need to step back from that and look at what are the numbers actually telling us? Does this distribute revenue the way we need it to? And ultimately, what I believe football fans love most is winning. They love winning. They love seeing their national team go on to that international stage and represent Australia really well and perform at World Cups and actually show what we can do. They love seeing their clubs play really well and they love Australian football doing well in the Asian Champions League. So I think whatever we do needs to be able to demonstrate that that's actually going to help us achieve that. So certainly a lot of people, as I said, are really connected. Their understanding of football is based around the transfer system. But as we sort of step back from that, it's our job certainly as we're representing the interests of players, but we've always acted in the best interest of the game, is to be able to assess whether or not it's going to have a positive impact. And we're working through that at the moment to understand more around Football Australia's thinking on it. Just quickly before we move on to another another topic, I did want to, and forgive me for getting a bit metaphysical with this, but you talk about winning, and there's a lot of talk about competitive balance here. On a philosophical level in sport, do you think there's really, is there actual a need to regulate competitive balance? Should competitive balance simply just rely on the players you, you employ, the coaches you employ, the staff you employ? Should it just not rest on your football IP and what you put out in the park? Is competitive balance we should regulate beyond telling clubs to get good? <laughs> it's, a really, it's a really good point, you know, and we've always got to add that up around, is it best just to kind of let the market dictate as to where clubs are at. Now we see a variety of approaches. We see the American approach, which has been more similar to here in our other codes as well too. And you see the more European approach, which is based on sporting merit and others. So I think what we need to understand is where's this league going? Is it going to be a closed shop? Is it going to be an open league? What does the national second division look like? How is it going to lock? All these sort of things are really important. The importance of competitive balance, I think we have seen historically when the league has been more even, there has been more interest in the league and that's in everybody's shared interest. Where I think we've got to get to a point is we've got to ensure that clubs are investing enough to be able to compete. And that's probably a key question. Rather than restraining them, and that's what the cap's been about now, of allowing clubs to invest more and those sort of things, we actually need to consider, are we pushing clubs like your Central Coast to invest enough to make sure they're putting on um, the best possible team onto the pitch? And that's probably the key question that we need to continue to focus on over the next couple of years. You talk about the United States, and it's obvious that the, the MLS has served as a bit of a role model for Australian football, but you also look at the MLS and I think currently you look at what's happening in Major League Baseball. The players have been locked out in part because of their demands that owners invest a minimum amount and they stop tanking and all of that sort of stuff. And we've seen 
for lack of a better word, players union in the US have taken a number of L's against owners in recent CBA negotiations across a lot of sports. Is that a bit of a warning uh, for the PFA if we do go down the American path that in America it's owners that tend to win these sort of negotiations a lot more than labour? I'm not sure on that point. I think there have been some significant wins. If you look at the National Basketball Players Association, the collective bargaining agreements they've done, Major League Baseball has always had a pretty challenging relationship yeah. with its players' association. But That's I think, predominantly not thinking Yeah, no, absolutely. But owners. I think there has been a significant period where they actually did forge a partnership and they were able to work collectively together. But we've obviously reached a different uh, part in that, in that negotiation or relationship, rather. But I think certainly we, our focus is always connecting players deeply to what we're doing, making sure that they're really engaged in all aspects of the PFA. When we talk about how we got to the point of where we signed off on the collective bargaining agreement, we'd done sort of multiple meetings with each player group. We'd had multiple committees, all those sort of parts where the players were really leading a lot of the negotiation. And to see the debate around synthetic pitches between Danny Towns and Ali Green, to see other players debating that was really important and really encouraging for us because we want to make sure, and it always has been at its best, the players have been in control here. And that's where we're at at the moment, which is really important. There's a real buy-in to what we're doing. But I think importantly to your question, there, there will be times in the future where we don't, aren't aligned on interest, but the hope is we can always find a way to get a deal done and to be able to move forward and progress the game's interest. And that's pretty much historically. We've been pragmatic over the past 25 years. We've, we've never been ideologues. Well, perhaps moving on from the domestic transfer system because money's never been my strong suit, but on the other matters, uh, structural reform in Australian football, Everything coming out of Football Australia land seems to indicate that we will be getting a national second tier in 2023, whether that be mid-2023 aligning with the NPL or in late 2023 moving into 2024 and aligning with the A-League season. I think you've hinted at it before, but PFA obviously had views on the uh, second division in the past. John Didelitz's uh, quote, NPL on planes, how it can't be that has gone down in... Uh, it's a famous quote now in Australian football, but what's the current PFA's current stance on the need for a national second tier? Look, I don't think our positions change from the uh, white paper that JD and others were really heavily involved in. Um, I think the key part is we need to grow the professional footprint of the game. We need more players. We need more opportunity for them at a professional level. We need more opportunity for our coaches, administrators and others, and we need to reconnect the game. That's really fundamental here. Now, how we do that is going to be really important, and the devil's going to be in the detail. The AFC, AAFC have done some really positive work around that. We know Football Australia is progressing that. There'll need to be discussions with the A-Leagues and with us as well too around how players are employed and what that looks like, and that comes down to what problem are we trying to solve. So are we able to solve our international competitive competitiveness, producing better players in a part-time environment? We need to work through that, okay? That's going to be really important. The next sort of part's going to be, how does it lock potentially with the A-League? Does it intersect with a Y-League at all? Does it, is there going to be some sort of mechanism for promotion or consideration for the national second division teams to go into the A-League? Because that's going to drive value in that league. So I think what's really fundamental is this competition isn't developed in isolation from the rest of the stakeholders. There's strong discussion with us and the players, and we're encouraged with the discussions we've had with the AFC that we continue to work with Football Australia and also the A-League clubs as well too, because that's going to be the key part of making sure we get 
this right. Again, nobody wants to start up a league and for it to fall over quickly. You know, I was unfortunately involved in North Queensland Fury and I saw when that club didn't work, the devastating impact it had on the community up there and their relationship with football, but also importantly as well to the impact it had on players' careers. And the vast majority of them, many of them that were far better than me and they should have picked up another gig, Unfortunately, that was pretty much the end of their professional career and it was a really challenging period for them all. So we need to get this right and we need to do the work. Um, but we're encouraged by the initial discussions and really supportive of the idea of establishing it. What it looks like has got to be worked out. Mm, well, because we have, uh, James Johnson has confirmed in a number of interviews that Football Australia has actually hired somebody now to drive the process of determining a model. And you've mentioned talks with FA and AFC. What has been communicated to the PFA about how far along this is? And you're obviously talking to a lot of people, it sounds like. So that sort of answered one of my other questions on this. Yeah. No, I think, um, look, we were really heavily involved early on in the white paper process, and then there'd been a bit of a lag, and, and there was a huge amount of demands on our time during COVID with our, our current membership in the A-Leagues. Um, and also our national team players and a lot of other people. You know, you imagine the AFC, AAFC clubs have had an incredibly difficult period, particularly in Victoria here over the past two years. So it's only been sort of more recently picked up that we've had those initial discussions with, with Nick, the chair of the AAFC, which have been important. And then yesterday we met with Football Australia to get a bit of an update of where, where they're at. We don't have any more detail of that. We don't know if there is more detail than that, but our understanding is that the detail is being worked through at the moment. It's... It's been said, it's on public record, that Football Australia is looking at predominantly two different options. One is your standard home and away type format, which generally seems to be the favourite of the ADFC and a lot of these NPL clubs advocating uh, for a national second tier. And there's also this Champions League model, which has been floated by um, James Johnson, which we don't know the exact details, but it looks like it would sit somewhere alongside uh, the NPL season. And so teams would do both. What, um, obviously that's just conjecture on my part, though I don't know that's certain, but what does the PFA have a preferred model? Maybe it's one of those two, maybe it's a different model entirely. Yeah, no, it's a really good question, Joey. I think at the moment, outside of AAFC's report, I don't have any more detail on that. So I think we'd need to get, it would be unfair for me to express a really strong view in the absence of having had detailed discussions with both themselves and also with Football Australia. Mm. The, um, with Australian football, I'm going to delve into a bit more philosophical again, but with the national second tier, obviously it's been advocated for decades now, long before probably you, both you and I were born, people have been talking about a national second tier and it hasn't come. There seems to be a lot of momentum surrounding it at the moment. Is there a risk in this process that perfect becomes the enemy of good? with a national second tier. We focus too much on what the national second tier won't be at its birth instead of what it can grow into in the future. How do we, but obviously at the same time, acknowledging that there has to be certain minimum level of standards because it, if it collapses, it poisons the well for a national second tier for generations. Is there that a balancing act that needs to be found there? Look, I think it's a game. We've never been short on ideas. Yeah. You know, We've always been able to come up with ideas and, and to push towards what we thought would be solutions. The challenge is around execution, and it will be, as to how we actually execute this model and actually doing the work to be really confident that we know it's going to work. Now, we think with this, it's really going to be fundamental that it does lock with the A-League in some way. That's going to drive value in these club licences and we're going to ask people to invest a significant amount, you imagine, in the AFC, in the national second division. So that's really fundamental. I think you raise an important point that the A-League certainly didn't start off 
the way it is now. So there is going to be a journey, but we need to be really clear on what that journey is going to be and what it looks like and make sure we don't cause more problems um, for the game through simply just plowing on ahead. So I think that's fundamental here. We need to actually do the work, make sure we get the model right, and then make sure we're incredibly disciplined in actually executing it as well. Mm. Uh, once again, acknowledging that ultimately Football Australia as the regulator of the game will control the how and when of the national second tier is introduced. I mean, the AFC can say a lot, you can say a lot, the APL can say a lot, but ultimately it's Football Australia's call surrounding a lot of these things. But what would the PFA like to see before an NSD is introduced? What minimum things would you like to see to before you throw your support behind the proposed model? I think it's not going to be any surprise to people that minimum standards around pay, around the amount of time that players are to be are to be working, the performance standards around the number of coaches, how it's actually going to work in terms of facilities, travel, all those sort of things are going to be really fundamental to the player experience. But then we need to go a little bit of a step forward and there was a really important piece of work that we did back in 2019 around the golden generation to understand their experiences and what we found was that the club actually sat at the very heart of their experience of a young player so if the objective is to make sure that we produce a better quality of players enhance the industry in this game we need to make sure we deeply understand when we were at our best, what did the game actually look like and what was it able to achieve from a cultural point of view. So there's going to be the regulatory stuff that no one's going to be surprised by as the things that we think are really fundamental. But there's going to be this broader discussion around the culture of the game and how we're going to reflect where we want to get to in relation to our development to talent, how we actually identify talent as well too is going to be really crucial and then how we actually foster strong relationships between that tier and the professional tier as well too. On the regulatory side of things, you mentioned pay there. Is there ever a scenario in which the PFA for the initial stages of the NSD would support professionals mixing with part-timers as the lead transition to full-time professionalism? Our view at the moment would be professionalism is the starting point and we believe that's fundamental to addressing what we want to do. But we have been pragmatic, for example, in the A-League women's around putting safeguards around things. So making sure that the players actually, the amount of time that they're actually in the club environment is well regulated, that we're not actually paying people part-time wages, but expecting full-time work from them as well too. So hopefully we'd be able to work through that. I think the starting point is and the ideal point that everybody in the game would agree is professionalism because that's going to give players the best possible opportunity to develop. And that's ultimately what we're talking about here in the National Second Division. If we need to have a broader discussion, then we've got to get into the weeds around exactly what's the hourly rate? How long is someone going to be in a club for? What's the support off the pitch as well too? Is there opportunities to develop around scholarships? Whatever it is, um, would be really fundamental, but we certainly haven't got to that detail yet. Mm. You touched on it a bit before, but just looking at the developmental side of the game now, both the domestic transfer system and the national second division have been floated by their advocates of means of structurally addressing Australia's shortfalls in player development. PFA has obviously done a lot of research in this area. You've released Wiley reports, Golden Gen reports, all of that sort of stuff. And I guess as a players union, it's in your best interest if Australia continues to produce players for you to re represent. Do you think domestic transfer system and a national second tier of what what's needed to help fix Australian development? I think more opportunity for players is fundamental. At the moment, we have 11 professional clubs in this country in the men's side. 
and we need more opportunity for players without doubt we need more demand for talent we need more opportunity for our young players to play at a high level so we need to have a discussion in that as well too not just around the national second division but also the Y league and getting that right i think what we saw at the end of that that the competition certainly was not fit for purpose it wasn't doing any of the things that we wanted that competition to do so we need to get that right and that's a broader discussion i think that's linked to the national second division in relation to the domestic transfer system it's yet to be demonstrated as that that's a fundamental part of developing talent and i think we need to assess is there a variety of ways that we could look at that and be able to achieve what we all agree upon which is incentivizing youth development so i touched on a little bit earlier that could be things around aligning performance objectives around a player makes 50 a-league appearances 100 a-league appearances there's money that flows back to their junior club and rewards them for playing a part in the development of that player that is what i think is really fundamental because the key part is if we simply do adopt the same thinking as everyone else around the rest of the world and they've got more money they've got a more long-standing culture and expertise in the game we're unlikely to get to where we want to get to so we've got to think through how can we do things differently and how can we make sure we apply real rigor to what we're doing because we're not weighed down by a previous culture of the way things have always been so i think that's really fundamental and that's something we're really passionate about how do we make sure that we do something that's really effective and that's actually going to take us from where we are now to where we actually want to be particularly on the men's side and make sure that we can continue to enjoy a really important period in women's football as well too as that changes from where we are to actually where we want to be post the women's world cup well you've mentioned one area there the y league which i think they're calling a league youth moving forward with the rebrand as one area that you'd like to see explored beyond uh transfer system and the second tier are there any other um, programs or reforms that the PFA think there needs to be conversations around exploring in the developmental space? I think the academy space is fundamental to the game. That needs to be the engine room of what we're doing. And when we look around the world, whenever leagues, clubs, federations are focused on getting that area right, whether that's in England through the elite performance plan, other parts of Scandinavia to Iceland is regularly referenced, that's really the key part of where we're going to develop talent. So I think ensuring that we have a national approach, making sure that coach development is accessible, that more people can get qualified, and that importantly, more of our players can get qualified. That's a real priority for us. How do we make sure that players are actually coming out of the game with qualifications and able to go straight back in and start developing the next generation? So that's gonna be, that's gonna be really crucial. And I think if we get the academies right and the junior national teams right, we've seen the benefit of that, of our young players going to the Olympics, you Joel King, um, Connor Metcalf and others are actually then, as a result of those strong performance, are attracting interest to leagues around the world. So I think in sort of answering your question, and sorry, I've sort of rambled through a few different things there, the Y League's fundamental. We need to get the academies right and make sure that we're adopting a sort of countrywide approach to that and we're working on key areas that we know we need to to be internationally competitive. And the junior national teams have always been crucial. When we've got them right, we've tended to produce top quality talent and gone on and we've had the best possible senior national teams not long after that. Because in the past, it was the general model was we had the AAS players would go there and maybe go back to their clubs. Now it seems like the academy space, there's a lot more reliance on A-leagues clubs and there's inherently going to be a level of tension between A-leagues academies, junior national teams and other football Australia um, pushes and programs that are in place and who gets whose time and all that, who invests what, that sort of stuff. How do we, how do we solve that problem? Well, I think mostly we've, made it work in the past couple of years. If you look at Conor Metcalf, he's a product of Melbourne City's Academy. He's played in the junior national teams as well too along that journey. 
how he's been developed in the academy there. He's then got his opportunity to be able to go on the world stage through the national teams, and he's competed regularly in our highest level on the domestic scene as well too. So I think that's a really good example. Joel King's another good example. Emerges out of Sydney FC's academy, was there for a significant amount of time before getting into the first team, and then he's been able to progress all the way to the Socceroos. So I think most of the time we've been able to do it. The key part has been that we've put the player first. That's going to be the absolute crucial part. It's very easy to say, it's harder to do. Are we able to make sure that we put the development of the player at the centre of everything we do? And that's going to be the key part. If we're able to do that, I think we'll be in a good position. A lot of the conversations that seem to be having around this, whether it's PFA or Australia APL, there's a lot of talk about structural reform, investment, or even just focus on players at the elite level. Um, but thinking back to that report you mentioned before, the Golden Generation report, it pointed out that the cultures that youngsters get immersed in at their local clubs for years, decades, before they actually come close to sniffing uh, a Joey's or a Junior Matildas or a Young Matildas or a Young Socceroos or whatever team, is vital to creating who they are as players. I mean, when you're, when you're six and seven years old, that's when your understanding of the game is shaped. Now, we're, we're never getting back to what the golden generation had. Society, sorry, society has moved on and nostalgia bait doesn't help anybody, but... How do we find the modern equivalent? Yeah, it's, really, it's, a, it's a really great challenge that we've got because you're absolutely right. When we looked at the experience of the golden generation, the club sat at the centre of everything they did. Their mum and dad worked in the canteen, marked the lines, did whatever it was, and they spent all weekend down at their junior club kicking a ball against the wall. And society's changed a huge part, a huge amount between then and where we are now. So I think the challenge is we need to look at how do we immerse kids and make football hugely accessible for them. We know cost is a barrier at the moment for a number of people in the community, so we need to work through how we do that. Now, training compensation and the domestic transfer system has been linked to that discussion around cost. But you need to look at the size of the market we have. We currently have about 10 players a year, 10 to 13 players a year going from the MPL to the A-League. You'd have to impose pretty significant training compensation on them to be able to address the cost to play. But I think cost to play is a crucial one. We're seeing our young African communities and we do a lot of work with football empowerment where there's a huge amount of talented young players in those programs, but cost is a barrier for them playing in the MPL. So we need to address that, Joey. We need to look at other things in relation to whether it's street football and making sure we have facilities available, using technology to engage them, whether it's through ABC iKids. I've got two young kids who spend a bit of time, particularly during COVID on that. Um, and how do we connect them and inspire them to want to play the game, to get out and kick a ball around. But I think we need to focus, as I said earlier, cost to play is a big barrier at the moment. We need to address that across the country and make sure that everybody has an opportunity to participate in the sport. We need to make sure that the culture of the sport is a really positive one, an aspirational one that allows people to connect to it. And then the last sort of part, I guess, on that is that we need to have role models at the national level and people that these young kids can aspire to. That's going to be really foundational because what we also looked at with the golden generation, they were growing up on Saturdays and Sundays watching SBS with mum and dad as well too, being inspired by the likes of Serie A and other leagues that were really important to them. So we've got a huge amount of work to do in that. There's a regulation discussion, but the cultural discussion, that's been seen to be at the heart of all the research that we've done. And we really need to put a huge amount of focus, not just on regulations, but also on the culture of the game as well. Moving on to other aspects now, more worldly matters now, I wanted to ask you about um, the, another topic that's become really in, intertwined with the PFA's mission, the subject of human rights. Um, before FIFA finally made it official, 
Um, your organisation came out in favour of Russia being excluded from international football until their invasion of Ukraine ended. Why? Well, there's no legitimacy to sport without embracing human rights. And we see when sport fails to respect human rights, just how challenged the reputation of sport is, and it can no longer claim to be a force for good, unless it does. When we look at what's occurring in Ukraine at the moment, we believe as an organisation we need to exert any leverage or any pressure we can to ensure the human rights of anyone in the world are upheld. Now, the challenge with that was always going to be there's also footballers in Russia that want to play for their national team and have played no part in bringing about this invasion of Ukraine. So I think our sort of perspective was looking that of saying, well, ultimately sport and in particular football has been used as a vehicle to legitimise Putin and that government and the way that they've conducted things really since the annexation of, of Crimea back in 2014. It's been business as usual for sport um, for Russia. And we've seen that in the way IOC's dealt with Putin and his regime. You've also seen it in relation to the 2018 Men's World Cup. And this is where it's led us to. So business as usual isn't going to see change. It's not going to see enough pressure applied to Russia. So our sort of decision making when we discussed it with with the players was we needed to do whatever we can to be able to exert pressure to bring peace in that region. And that's where we that's where we landed. But I think the key part for us is that this is fundamental not just to players but also to sport. Nobody wants to go to a Qatar World Cup and know that six and a half thousand people have died between migrant workers have died between the awarding of that event and where we are now. That's going to be really challenging for the players to go and participate and for sport to continue to be able to claim it's actually a force for good when it's actually causing that level of suffering and denying people their most basic human rights. Because mm. on the subject of sport as a force for good, inevitably, um, whenever things such as these happen, like PFA comes out in favour of excluding Russia from football, Josh Cavallo comes out as the first openly gay, well not the first, but the only openly gay male football playing professional playing a professional game in the world. You saw Michelle Heyman's work before there in the LGBTQIA plus space. Uh, the Matildas with the um, Indigenous flag at the Tokyo, Olympi uh, at the Tokyo Olympics. The, the response from certain quarters is always, sport is apolitical, stick to sports. What's your response to those people? These aren't political matters that we're discussing. We're discussing human rights. When we look at Ukraine, we're talking about the right to safety, to freedom, the right to be able to access democracy and be able to have the government in power that the people have actually elected. This isn't a matter of politics. This isn't a matter of left versus right. These are internationally recognised human rights. So that's sort of foundational there. When we look at in the space of Josh, we're also talking about the same sort of things. We're talking about safety, acceptance, to be able to love the person that you want to, to be able to marry that person. And that's really foundational for us. So this isn't a political discussion. Sports often put that up as a barrier. They're really not. If we look at the IOC and the way China's used the most recent games for political pursuit, trying to make an argument that you're apolitical just has no weight at all. Whatever sports, however sports organisations are operating, they're often being used for political means. Human rights are not a matter to be um, negotiated over. They're inherent in every, every person. And that's been set out since the end of World War II, and the idea was to make the world a better place. So we're really committed to making sure that we play our part in advancing them. Mm. You touched on it before about Qatar as well, and the PFA has been educating its members on that, um, from what I understand. Um, we recently saw Jackson Irvine speak out about it as well. I think Elise Kellen Knight has spoken out about it as well. Just what can 
Australian football actually do in a circumstance such as that? So the key sort of starting point for us, Joey, was we believe that when you know better, you're able to do better. So we wanted to make sure the players had access to the best possible information. So we connected with FIFPRO, who've done a huge amount of work with the building and woodworkers union that represent um, and work on behalf of the migrant workers based there in Qatar. And we arranged an exchange that allowed for Amnesty International to be able to outline the broader position in the country at the moment, what has worked, what hasn't worked. There has um, been significant reform in that country for the better, but there's also remains a huge amount of challenges around implementation as well too. So we wanted to make sure that the players understood exactly where it was at. And then also importantly, we've been able to work with FIFPRO to be able to connect directly with the workers and connect people such as Elise, Ivy, Jackson and others with the workers there. And there's been two parts for that. One, we wanted to show solidarity to them to make sure they feel supported, you know, to be on a call and actually see these workers feel supported by high profile footballers has been really rewarding and they've really enjoyed that. And that's been important for those workers in that country. And the second part is leverage. We've seen the more players have spoken about this, whether it's been the likes of Tim Spav, um, the Finnish captain, to the Netherlands national team, to the Norwegian national team, it's caused, caused change, positive change in that country as well too. So I think for the players, it's ultimately about pressure. We're part of a broader movement of players around the world. FIFPRO have been really important in this space. World players who obviously Brendan, our former, Brendan Schwab, our former chief executive is now heading up, have been really important in that. So I think from a player's perspective, it's been about supporting their fellow workers. And the second part is applying pressure to FIFA and others who have committed to embedding human rights through sport, to making sure they actually do their part. Looking around the AFC, there's a number of states that have well-documented human rights issues, both within their own borders and through their actions abroad. But these nations are also in positions of sizable influence and power within the AFC. What sort of, does that present a challenge to Australian football? Does that tie Australian football's hands behind its back a little bit, this, the knowledge that they are in control of the AFC, basically? Our belief is that Australian football will be strengthened through embracing human rights. So that's really fundamental for us. We don't believe that you're able to simply build strength through trying to appease others. That's a path to nowhere because as soon as you stand up for yourself, that relationship will break down. And we're seeing that play out now with Russia and FIFA and other parts of the world. So I think for certainly in the AFC, there's a huge amount of work to do there to get the organisation right, to be able to make sure, you know, if you look at the Asian Women's World, Asian um, Cup that was just played. If a Matilda won that, they would have walked away with just over $20,000. If a Socceroo had won it in 2019, they would have walked away with $124,000. So if you look at, that's just an absolute clear case of gender discrimination. And that's despite the fact that Matildas and the Socceroos have an exact same collective bargaining agreement. So there's a huge amount of work to do in that space and with the AFC, and you're absolutely right, there's some countries that Discussions around human rights are not going to be a comfortable one, but we believe it's important and our game has a leading role to play throughout Asia to make it a better place to not only play, fo play football, but also a better place to live. On the flip side, of course, these nations can then turn around and point to Australia's treatment of Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander peoples or Australia's treatment of refugees and asylum seekers and ask what exactly gives... Australian football, the right to talk about this, is that a fair point? Absolutely. You know, I think 
we've recently signed up to the Uluru Statement and that was an important part for us to be able to make sure to your broader point around, you know, get your own house in order as well too. We think you can do both at the same time. Actually, you have to do both at the same time. Our treatment of asylum seekers is deplorable and we should all be incredibly embarrassed and hurt, hurt by the amount of hurt that we've inflicted on people simply coming to this country seeking to find a better place, um, having been persecuted, um, or being put in danger in their homes. So I think our treatment of refugees, the way our government has reacted to um, genuine reconciliation has been incredibly poor and Australia needs to do a heap better in that space. But we think we can do both at the same time as an organisation. We're going to make sure we pursue genuine reconciliation through the Uluru Statement. We're going to make sure we continue to support organisations such as the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre and the work that Craig Foster is doing to be able to get those people out of detention that have been in there for close to a decade now. And we're also going to bring up human rights abuses in Qatar because we have the capacity to do it. We don't need to pick and choose. We need to be able to lend our voice to wherever we can to help make positive change. Because another thing you're you're increasingly seeing uh, in the lead into Qatar, but there were also discussions of it in the lead into Russia, was about the World Cup's going to be in the USA in 2026, also Canada and Mexico. USA... It's hardly an isolationist when it comes to global affairs and interventions in other states. Will we be having those same conversations then, or is that a false equivalency? I think every situation is a little bit different in terms of what we're seeing there. Certainly in terms of, you know, when we're talking about Ukraine and Russia, we're seeing an outright invasion. And uh, to my understanding, Ukraine posed no threat to the borders of, of Russia. They simply had a different view on terms of where they would like to take the country and take it in a different direction of being um, subservient to Russia. So I think they're two different things there. But I think certainly, as I said earlier, that human rights, it's not a negotiation around them. Everybody has the right um, to ensure that their government and the state protects their human rights. And if the USA is acting in a way that um, we don't believe that they're respecting human rights, whether that be domestically within the country or internationally, and some of the things that you've spoken about that, whether it's in the invasion of Iraq or the invasion of Afghanistan and the subsequent withdrawal, we'll certainly ensure that we uh, raise our voice around that as well. Okay, well, by Bush, we've been going nearly an hour, so I'd like to thank you very much for joining us here on ESPN's Beyond the Lead to give the players' point of view about some of the major issues facing down not just Australian football, but indeed sport as a as a global entity uh, in the years ahead. No worries. Thanks, Joey. Really appreciate you taking the time. So, Bo Bush providing the player's view on the ongoing developments surrounding Australian football. The third chat in ESPN's series with some of the biggest movers and shakers in the game down under. You can also find conversations with Football Australia CEO James Johnson and APL Managing Director Danny Townsend on the Beyond the Lead feed. And you can keep abreast of all things Australian and indeed world football on ESPN.com.au and its various international equivalents. Myself, Ante Jukic, Marissa Lodanik and Stephanie Brunts amongst those that will be bringing you all the news and views on the game down under. But for now, I'd like to thank you for joining us on another edition of ESPN's Beyond the Lead, this time for a conversation between myself and PFA Co-Chief Executive Bo Bush. 
I've been your host, Joey Lynch, and as a reminder, you can catch this episode, every other episode of Beyond the Lead, and all of ESPN's collection of podcasts and audio goodness wherever you do so happen to get your podcast from. If you're enjoying Beyond the Lead, or any of those other pods, be sure to subscribe, leave a famous five-star review, and help spread the word. Thanks for listening today, tomorrow, or whenever you happen to be tuning in, and do not fret, as I'll catch you soon for another deep dive into the world of sports, as ESPN takes you beyond the lead, very soon.